So I did uh, tell you last week that I would be addressing why Calvary Chapel has chosen not to uh, yield or obey to the current government restrictions on the church. And uh, so here we are, and uh, we pretty much have a full house. Uh, it's funny because I've been asking for input about our discussion in Galatians, and I've gotten very, very little. But this past week, I've had more people text me, call me, talk to me about this Sunday, next Sunday. Uh, this church loves controversy. Uh, so, anyway, thanks. I know you guys do. Uh, now, um, and I think that this is probably true for many, many Christians, but, you know, because of the, the government restrictions of late, it's forced you know, a number of Bible students to look deeper into the relationship between the church and the state, especially uh, regarding the extent of government jurisdiction and the limitations of its authority over the church, okay, over the church. And, and this has actually been happening uh, for about 2,000 years now, by the way, okay. Uh, it's so interesting to me because uh, this, it, it really goes back to the first century. You know, the question of where that line exists between the church and the state, uh, it's, it's been a frequent issue. And you know, as the apostles and the early church were fulfilling the Great Commission, they ran headfirst into government restrictions, whether it was from the Jews or from the Romans. And this is what's interesting, is that in their progress, uh, they were both, uh, there was both instruction from Paul and Peter to obey the civil authorities as they themselves, in certain contexts, were disobeying civil authorities. Yeah. Now, Peter and Paul were either hypocrites, or there is indeed a certain context in which civil authority does not apply to the church, its mission, its mandates, and its ethic. There better be. Amen? There better be. Yeah. According to the scriptures, both the apostolic teaching to obey the governing authorities and the apostles' actions in disobeying those authorities were directed by God. In other words, their actions were not contradicting their teaching. Both of those things were inspired by God, but they do have a context, okay? So apparently there are limitations to the government's authority and there are limitations to the jurisdiction where they can exercise that authority. Now, of course, this does not mean that the authorities will honor those boundaries, but it nonetheless demonstrates that those boundaries do exist and that the people of God are in no conflict with the scriptures in those contexts. And as God's people, that's really what we're concerned about, right? We wanna be compliant first and foremost with God's will that's found in his word. And it's for us in, in our time under these circumstances to rediscover those boundaries to ensure that God is honored. It's our responsibility, okay? Now, interestingly enough, our current situation is the exact opposite of what was going on from the 12th to the 15th centuries. At that time, the church was exercising so much power that popes were excommunicating Roman emperors and they were ruling the empire through them. That's nuts. The emperors had in many ways become the, the puppets of the sitting popes. Imagine that. Imagine me having Inslee under my thumb. At that time, <laughs> the question should have been, been this. Biblically speaking, what is the church's jurisdiction and the extent of its power and authority? Because that wasn't right either. 
And then later into the Reformation, there was a complete reversal of the power so that you had kings ruling over the church as the official head of the church in complete violation of the scriptures. And of course, that led to various problems with monarchs doing terrible things to the churches in places like England and Scotland because the pastors refused to recognize the king's headship over the church. To those pastors, and according to Paul's theology, Christ alone is the head of the church and he alone rules over her. He alone rules over her. Now this of course resulted in the Puritans and others fleeing to America, which eventually developed into the American colonies, as you know, who ultimately separated from England to establish a democracy, which in the process, they secured something that is very biblical. It's the separation of church and state, okay? It's very biblical. And so here we are today where the tyranny of the state is once again a threat to the church, okay? And when the state gains control of something, it does not easily let go, historically, okay? In San Francisco, only one congregant is allowed in the church building at a time. That's not church. That has nothing to do with Jesus' concept of the church. So now is the time for the church to biblically define the boundaries between the church and the state and to do it with as much clarity as we can, understanding there are, there are multiple different contexts. Okay? But our primary concern is this one. I'll address one more because it's especially important to this church. Um, yeah, and we want to make sure that we honor those contexts because as Peter says about this whole thing, we do not, we do not want to use our liberty as a cloak for vice. Okay, 1 Peter 2. We do not want to use our liberty as a cloak for vice. We want to remain as bondservants of God. So civil disobedience has a biblical context, and we want to be careful that we don't cross the line. Can we agree with that? Okay, yeah. Yeah. If we cross the line, we won't just be disobeying the government, then we'll find ourselves at odds with the Lord, and we'll have defeated our purpose. So we want to be careful. But there's another problem uh, with all of this, or involved in all of this. Uh, As you probably know, uh, I know that you guys don't listen very well, you're still on Facebook, I'm sure. Uh, Over the last few months, divisions have been made and Christians have taken their sides. And uh, believers have even parted ways from each other over the issues. In fact, there has been plenty of uh, ungodliness on both sides of the aisle, and both sides have become self-righteous as they've condemned the other side. Uh, It's become a mess. I would say that most have failed in their biblical mandate to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. As Paul told the Ephesians, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. How do we do that, Paul? With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so Paul reminds us, he says, there is one body, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called into one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all, Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. You know, how dare us divide the body of Christ over issues like these? It's terrible. Division is ungodly, especially when the most 
fundamental aspects of the faith are not at stake, as they most certainly are not at stake in this instance. Concerning some of the issues, we could easily agree to disagree without the self-righteousness and the division. And you know, what has been so sickening to me is when believers begin to use the tactics of the world to shame people into compliance. I hate that. I hate it. The moment a professed believer, you know, virtue signals someone else, we have a serious problem because in the Christian faith, you know, we, we rebuke people for clear violations of scripture. You, I, I use the word clear, clear violations of scripture. We disciple and we counsel people in the truth of the word. And when there's disagreement, we should do it humbly. We don't manipulate for the moral high ground and then use it against people. You know, really that's just a, an ungodly way of coercing people to think and act like you. It's just self-righteousness. As the body of Christ, you know, we need to engage one another maturely, uh, not on Facebook, by the way. That is, that is an ungodly platform to argue with people, okay? Yeah. We need to use the text of scripture from its context as the ultimate authority, rule, and guide. Otherwise, what happens is we become the ultimate authority and the arbitrator of Christian faith and practice. And we are not. The scriptures are. And when the scriptures in their context speak plainly, everyone who names the name of Christ should obey humbly. But when the scriptures are not so clear, we do not have the right to create division. You know, I think that hopefully all of us are mature enough to understand that it is at times like this where Satan is looking for a foothold so that he might divide the church. And Peter reminds us that we need to be vigilant. So when we see the church doing that and we're tempted to be a part of it, we need to do everything we can, as Paul says, to endeavor to keep the unity. Okay? We need to endeavor to do that. Yeah, times like this. So I may at this time disagree with you on some points, but listen, I refuse to be Satan's pawn to divide the Lord's body. Okay? I'm, I'm determined to keep the unity and the bond of peace. What will you do? What will you do at this time? So let's, let's move on. Now, for quite some time, uh, I've been reading, I've been listening to a number of works by various scholars about the subject that we're addressing this morning. You know, men like John Calvin and Francis Schaeffer, Norman Geisler, John MacArthur, William Hendrickson, James Montgomery Boyce, Wayne Grudem, you know, all men that are very capable exegetes of the scriptures, all of them, okay? And what is so fascinating to me is while that they agree for the most part, except for Francis Schaeffer, <laughs> the Christian manifesto, they are fairly divergent in some of the finer points. But when it comes to what we're discussing today, I can find no disagreement, none, none, no disagreement. I recently read a chapter from uh, Dr. Wayne Grudem's book called Christian Ethics, which deals with the subject of you know, the church and the state. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce has a, a similar talk in his exegetical commentary. Both were discussing a section of scripture where the Pharisees and the Herodians had set a trap for Jesus in Matthew 22. And that's where I'd like to begin this morning. So if you would, as is our custom, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? I'll be reading to you from Matthew 22, verses 15 through 22. And we'll be referencing a whole ton of scripture this morning. I had planned to address other passages um, but um, I just don't have time, so many passages we could turn to. Matthew twenty-two, fifteen 15 through 22. 
Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true, liars, and teach the way of God in truth. Nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. That is true. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? (laughs) Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they had heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for Jesus' example and his teaching. The buck stops there. And Lord, we want to conform our lives obediently, willingly, and humbly to the instruction of Christ. Lord, I pray that as we discuss this issue, that, Lord, those who are wavering between two opinions on this, that they would be settled. And that then they would just be settled because they agree, but they'd have conviction, Lord, according to your word. And they would not be fearful of doing what is right in spite of what the government might say or in spite of what the culture might try to say. So, Lord, help us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The question posed to Jesus really was this. Should we as Jews pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now our talk this morning, uh, which you can thank me for, is really not about paying taxes. Okay. <laughs> if Jesus said yes, the, Pharisee, the Pharisees would accuse him of being um, disloyal to Rome. I'm sorry, they would accuse him of being loyal to, to, to the Romans which would offend every patriot in the nation of Israel, especially two zealots that were among his disciples, uh, Simon and probably Judas, okay? Not that we care too much about what Judas Iscariot thinks, but nonetheless, it would offend a large portion of the people that he's trying to reach. It would be uh, destructive to what he's trying to accomplish. But if Jesus says, no, we should not pay taxes to Caesar, the Pharisees would accuse him before the Romans of insurrection and saying that he's leading a rebellion. They thought they had him. But instead, Jesus asks his inquisitors about whose image is on the coin, to which they respond, Caesar's. Now, Jesus must have only shown them you know, one side of the coin that has Caesar's image on it because the other side had the image of a Roman god. Be that as it may, Jesus responds to them this way, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Now there are some implications, strong implications, in what Jesus says in the passage. The implication, the first one, is that there are things that belong to Caesar. And I know that irks us. (laughs) But there are things that belong to Caesar, or we might say the state. And what belongs to the state should be given to the state. And all of those things, of course, have been as we know, delegated to the state by God for everything created belongs to the Lord. Amen? It's his. But Jesus' statement also implies that there are things that belong to God. There are things that belong to God. And not only should they be rendered to God, but they should never be rendered to the state. Never. Okay? Because under no circumstances do they belong to the state. The state does not delegate things to God. Ever. God delegates things to the state. Okay, 
So we have, I think, two questions that need to be answered. What is it that belongs to the state? And what is it that belongs to God but should never be rendered to the state? There are things ordained by God to be under the direct control and authority of the state. And there are things ordained by God to be under the direct authority of his word. And no crossover. No crossover. So what belongs to the state? Implied in Jesus' statement is this. That which belongs to the state should be governed and controlled by the state. Okay, that's, that's in perfect accord with Paul's teaching uh, and Peter's teaching, uh, both Romans 13, verses 1 through 7, and 1 Peter 2, verses 13 through 17. I want to read Romans 13 to you because this is the passage that people keep bringing me back to. What about, what about, what about, and oh yeah, and 1 Peter 2, okay? So Romans 13, 1 through 7, Paul says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. Sorry. For they are God's minister attending continue to this very thing. Render therefore, same word again, render. Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. Notice that Paul limits his discussion here to what belongs to the state. He says nothing in this section about what belongs to God. That discussion is found elsewhere. Okay? Here Paul says that what belongs to the state, or the things that should be rendered to the state, is our obedience. Verse 1 and 5, our good deeds. Verse 3, our taxes, of course, verse 6 and 7. Our customs, that's, or tolls, verse 7. Our fear, or reverence, verse 7, and our honor. So, really, it's obedience, taxes, and respect, basically. Okay. Now, just because Paul does not mention what belongs to God in this section does not mean that Romans 13 stands alone or that we must offer obedience without exception. Okay? Because there are exceptions throughout the scriptures to what is said in Romans 13. Off the top of my head, I could probably name 20 to you. Okay? From Genesis all the way through Revelation. There are tons of them. So in other words, Romans 13 has a context. It has a context in which it should be applied. And it has a context in which it should never be applied. Okay? We should not make Paul say more than he meant. Understand? So here we have what belongs to the state, what should be rendered to the state in a general sense, but not in an absolute sense. So now, what is it then that belongs to God that should always be rendered to God and should never be rendered to the state? There's at least two things. The first one is family. Does that resonate with you at all? Family. And then the second is the church. These two things absolutely belong to God and they should never be restricted or controlled by the state, okay? Now, there is a moral responsibility outside of your family if something 
extremely immoral is happening in your family for others to get involved. Okay, but that is a different story. We're not addressing those things today. Now, the truth is both the family and the church have responsibilities to the state. That is, they have civic duties, but they should never be governed by the state. Okay? This is made absolutely clear by the teaching of Scripture regarding biblical headship and authority. Okay? Shared headship over the things that God has instituted in the, in the Bible, there's just no such thing. Anything with two heads is a what? It's a freak. Okay? It's a freak. This is true from the very top down. The Trinity has one head, God the Father. God the Father. Okay? Jesus is subject to his Father. He's equal to his Father in absolutely every way but authority. Okay? The body of Christ, the universal church, has one head. That's Christ. The family has one head, the Father, except where sin or death or both have left the family without a father. Government has one head, the law or as we would say, the rule of law, that the law is king, just as God instituted it, okay? Now, when the discussion of headship is addressed, for example, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says that the head of every woman is man, and the head of every man is Christ, and the head of Christ is God. And of course, we know that children are under the headship of their father. There is structure, or a structure of authority from children all the way to God the Father. Imagine if there was no structure. It would be chaos, wouldn't it? But our God is the God of order, okay? Notice that in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul did not say that the head of every woman is man as well as the state. Imagine that. Or the head of every man is Christ and the state. That would create absolute insanity, okay? Socially, culturally. God has not granted the state any headship or authority over the family. The family is separate. It's a self-governed entity. It's distinct from the state. It's within the state but it's still distinct from it. Let me make my point this way. Fathers, uh, what would you do if the government told you that you couldn't teach your kids creation, but you had to teach them Darwinian evolution? I didn't have to answer, I see the smiles on your face. What if, what if the government forbids you to teach the story of Joseph in Genesis? What would you do if the government forbids you to discipline your children? What would you do if the government meddled in the affairs of your home? Would you object? Would you resist? Would you? Would you disobey of all things? Yeah. Why would you do that? I mean, especially when the scriptures say, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Why would you disobey the government if resisting the government is the same as resisting God? And see, I, I know that you wouldn't disobey simply because they were telling you to abstain from what is biblical and because they were having you do what is unbiblical. That's a good reason to disobey, but it's not the only good reason. You would disobey because you know the government has no right to do that. You know that intuitively. You don't just have biblical justification for it. Okay. You would disobey because you know the government has no right. You would disobey because you know in your heart that government would be overstepping its jurisdiction, and abusing its authority, authority that God did not give it. You would know that. If the government gave those mandates, you know, your children would know the creation story and the story of Joseph by heart, because you're like me. <laughs> that would, that would uh, like fuel your civil disobedience. You know that the government has no jurisdiction over your family. If you obeyed the state, you guys, in this context, in this context, you would not be resisting God. You understand? 
You would not be resisting God because your family is not within the government's jurisdiction. You can say no to the government when they want to govern your family. Fathers, your family is your dominion, okay? Your dominion. If the state interferes, it's the one in violation of God's ordination, not you, okay? Your instruction regarding your family have come directly from the Lord through his word, and no one, no one has the right to interfere with that. No one, okay? This is also true of the church. Listen carefully to what Paul has to say in this regard. He says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence, Colossians 1, 15 through 18. And God the Father, listen to this, put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. All means every. All things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Ephesians 1, 22 through 23. The statement means that Jesus has complete charge over his own body, and his body is the church. He has absolute charge of his body, which is the church. Christ alone directs the church, prescribes her mission, her worship, her conduct, absolutely everything, everything. Paul also says in Ephesians 5, 23 through 24, for the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he's the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. I'm not getting into a marriage talk right now, but the portions referring to Christ, because Christ is head of the church, the church should be subject to him in all things. All things. His headship, his authority over the church supersedes anything that the government says. The church should be subject, subject to Christ even when it means disobedience to the government. Now, some people do not understand Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 in this way. But as I said at the beginning, there are too many examples in Scripture that prove otherwise, where God honored his people for disobeying the governing authorities in many different contexts and in many different ways, many of them. Let me give you an interesting example that I think is pertinent to us. In Matthew 23, Jesus said this to his disciples. The scribes and the Pharisees, they sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. But do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. Matthew 23, 2 through 3. In other words, obey the governing authorities, just don't be a hypocrite. All right? But then in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, the same group of people that Jesus said to obey... We're forbidding the disciples to preach in the name of Jesus. Now what do they do? The disciples said to them, we ought to obey God rather than men. Acts 5, 29. But but the governing authorities gave the disciples an order that they did not comply with. So were the disciples disobeying Jesus' instruction? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. They understood that his instruction did not have universal context. It does not have a universal application. There are exceptions to it. 
As soon as the authorities tried to regulate the mission of the church, they exceeded their jurisdiction, and the disciples were no longer obligated to comply. Now, they humbly accepted their beating. That's the part that bugs me. I do not like to be touched. So it's true, government may have the ability to punish everyone who violates their decrees, just as they did the disciples, but it does not mean that God has granted that authority to them. Just because they have the power and the might does not make them right. Okay? If you didn't hear that over the baby, just because they might have the power and might does not make them right. It just makes them a bully, okay? a tyrant. But people ask, you know what? What if what happens in the church has a negative impact on society? I hear this garbage all the time. What if what the church does, what if what the family does has a negative impact on the culture? What if something the church does impacts the the politics and, and community health negatively? So I have a question for the questioner. Who gets to define what is negative? Who gets to define that? Because more and more our culture is saying that families and churches are indoctrinating people with negative beliefs and practices that will prove to be harmful to society. Like what? Give me an example, okay? You know, Hillary Clinton believes that the government should be able to tell you how to raise your family because she wants to control what society believes from the earliest stages on. She doesn't want us Christianizing our children because it challenges her ideology, okay? She has a philosophy that's very similar to Adolf Hitler's, very similar. A number of Ivy League professors, along with many government entities, are saying that homeschool families are a serious threat to our democracy and the American way of life. God, I hope so. (laughs) Another complaint is that homeschooling is ruining the lives of children. You know, what they really mean by these statements is that homeschool children do not behave like their children or have the same values as their children, which hopefully all of us believe is true because we're trying to instill biblical values in them and not the values of our culture, okay? You know, the world system, as it's under the sway of the devil, as John says, it's always going to be critical of the values of the church. And you know, the devil's opinion really is not my concern. And I'm not gonna be intimidated by it, and I'm not gonna be swayed by it. The pastors in Canada can get into trouble for teaching certain topics from the Bible, especially if it's the subject of sexuality, homosexuality. So what they mean by negative influence is, is really biblical truth, okay? The Houston City Council and their lawyers wanted pastors to submit their sermons to the authorities so they could monitor what they were teaching and so that they could censor what they did not like. The ordinance did not pass. But more of that garbage is coming. Something similar happened in Georgia as well to a pastor. So what is perceived as negative really is just the truth of the scriptures. And is the parable that Jesus told of himself and the Pharisees saying, we will not have this man to rule over us. Well, we will, we will. But opposition to the church is growing. But listen, those things, those statements, those criticisms, it's just a ruse, okay? The argument for how the conduct of a home or church impacts society as a whole will always be used to justify various forms of government intrusion and overreach, always, okay? The government will always look for reasons to interfere with the affairs of the church. It will use any excuse necessary to gain control, okay? And it is true, by the way, at least it ought to be true, we should be the greatest threat to how secular society conducts itself ethically and politically. We should be. That's our responsibility as the church. 
Now, in terms of the church's basic function, its, its role, its responsibilities, its divine mandates, the government has certainly crossed the line with its restrictions of late. Okay? I will not waver on this at all. Some of the restrictions have made it illegal to do what we've been called to do as believers and as leaders of the church, like assembling for worship or limiting our attendance. Acts 2.42 through 46, Hebrews 10.25. I'm not going to let any excuse from the government make me forsake the assembly. I'm not. You know, greeting one another intimately, it's throughout the scriptures. It's just what believers do. Anointing the sick with oil, James 5.14. Been doing that since March, okay? And we're not gonna stop doing it, yeah. Laying hands on people for a variety of reasons. Acts 6.6, Acts 8.17, Acts 13, Acts 28, Hebrews 6, 2. Interestingly enough about Hebrews 6, 2, talking about the laying on of hands, uh, it's not mentioned as some insignificant practice, by the way. It's actually listed among some of the most fundamental things of the Christian faith. How bizarre is that? Laying on of hands. Read the text, Hebrews 6, 2. Right among other things that are fundamental to our faith and practice. You know, we could have masked up during worship. We could have limited the number of people coming to our services. We could have met outside, we could have social distanced, but the elders and I chose not to because it's not in keeping with the church's directives. Either Christ is head over all things pertaining to the church, or he's, over, he's only head over some. It's all or some, okay? At least in some people's minds. To me, it's all. Now, we're not instructed to yield to the state in the assembly of the church. We've been called to lead the church according to the scriptures. And there's no biblical justification to ask people to wear masks in the fellowship of the church or for our worship. We've been commanded not to social distance in the context of our fellowship. You guys, we've been commanded not to. You can't have koinonia, fellowship, as described in the Bible by social distancing. It is impossible, okay? So if you throw your arms around me, I'm not gonna be offended, okay? If you give me a holy kiss, culturally, it might be a little weird, okay? (laughs) And depending on who you are, you might have to fight my wife off or something. So, <laughs> We've been commanded to be together. And you know, outdoor services are fun as long as it's not raining or freezing cold. And this is the issue that churches are facing now in California and in eastern Washington, eastern Oregon. I spoke to a friend the other day. They're having now to move their services indoors against the governor's wishes in Oregon. But they've decided that they cannot do this. They must obey the scriptures and they cannot meet outside any longer. They're moving in. Now, some people, you know, have chosen to mask up for various reasons. Okay, that's fine. Some people have practiced social distancing in other contexts and some people have chosen not to come and we've, we've honored those decisions. Okay. But in this context, I'm not going to surrender an inch of jurisdiction to the government. Okay. So here's the conclusion of all of this. As the pastor of this church, You guys, I cannot honor Jesus' headship if I allow the government to regulate the affairs and conduct of the church. I would be serving two masters at that point. And I recall Jesus saying something about that being a bad idea. It would divide my loyalties. It would diminish Christ's headship over this assembly, which amounts to a partial transfer of power. And historically, it always leads to a complete takeover. And then I would no longer be the servant of Christ. I would become the agent of the state. We've seen this in other places, like the clergy of the Russian Orthodox Church in Russia, 
most of which are atheist, by the way, or the pastors of the state church in China. I would be under government lordship and not the lordship of Christ. And I will go underground before I do the bidding of the state in this setting. Thanks. Jesus has never granted the state any authority to restrict or control the affairs of his church. His word is our directive. So when it comes to Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2, the family and the assembly of the church, they are exempt. They're exempt. So when people hear that we're gathering without masks and without social distancing and say, well, what about Romans 13? I say the text doesn't apply to the assembly of the church, its mission, its mandates, or its morality. It applies to a different context. Now, when we enter a civil context, you guys, we are then subject to civil law so long as it does not interfere with our mission and morality. So long. We should obey the laws of the land, as it were, as long as they do not call for us to do something immoral and as long as they do not forbid us to share the name of Jesus, which is our mission. But when we're not in a civil context like the fellowship of the church, of the confines of our home, we do not have to comply with any government restrictions because we would be surrendering Christ's headship. We don't do church the way the government wants us to do church. We don't do family the way the government wants us to do family. These belong to Christ with his word as our guide. So we will not yield to any government infringement upon the practices of our faith. And with that said, we are willing to face the consequences peacefully, okay? Peacefully. I may not like it, but we'll do it peaceably, okay? And if they forcefully stop us from meeting in this building, we'll just meet someplace else, okay? We'll do what Paul did in Ephesians. We'll meet from house to house. We will get together. We will practice the faith that Christ has handed down to us, okay? All right, well, that's really what I have. I have many more things I'd like to say. Uh, I'm not sure how much trouble I want to get myself into. I did want to reiterate the fact that we have no interest in making this a political thing. Okay? We are wanting to quietly and humbly do as Christ has commanded us. Okay? We're not trying to draw attention to this. We're not trying to take a stand against the government. We're just trying to obey Christ. Does everybody understand that? Okay. All right, I have zero uh, political motivation, but that'll be different next week. (laughs) Go ahead and stand up and we'll pray. I'll give you guys some time. Lord Jesus, we love you. And Lord, we should have no conflict in our conscience when it comes to obeying your directive. We don't civilly disobey because we have a heart of rebellion. We just are convicted that obeying you is preeminent. And so, Lord, help us to understand that in our hearts with deep conviction, that Christ is king. And, Lord, I pray that if we do encounter resistance from the government or even persecution, that we would receive it in a godly way. We can protest peacefully. We can resist peacefully. But, Lord, help us to to be godly in the process. Lord, I thank you for my church family. And um, I pray again that whoever was wavering between two opinions that it would be the scriptures that would help them to fall to one side, the side of your word, and and help them to hold their position humbly as others will most definitely disagree. And Lord, help us to continue to be a light to our community as the authorities have the people uh, gripped with fear. And Lord, we know that, that that's not from you. So help us to be an encouragement to people. Help them to understand where our lack of fear comes from. 
And Lord, just use us for your glory. Be glorified, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.